Most everybody has an idea about what you are. What you are. God knows who you are, and He calls us to learn His ways. my song 
Please join me in prayer. Here we are again this morning, God, and we thank you for the ways that you're meeting us in this time. And we open our hearts, our spirits to you during this service and invite you to just bring in whatever we need. And Lord, we pray for a shift in the atmosphere across the globe that you would speak peace and grace and you would shift things where they're needed, Lord, to peaceful reconciliation, peaceful discussions, ability for ears to hear and people to say what they need to say and that your grace and your hand would be all over it, Lord, to bring good things, to bring change where we need it, Lord, and we're desperate for change in so many ways, God. And we thank you that this is a, a time when we can do that, that we can spend the time we need to stop and pause and look and listen 
and for all the good things you're doing among us, Lord. We bless our Blue Water community this morning. Uh, we bless this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Because we can't gather together publicly yet, uh, the staff misses chatting with people. One of the ways we're combating that is inviting you to send in video questions that we can reply to. This week, our first question comes from Adrian. Jordan uh, How are you doing, Jordan? Anyway, my question for you is, I'm a microbiologist and you're a prophet. When can we give each other a hug? Aloha. Thanks, Adrian. You asked a very important question about hugging because everybody knows what a huggy person I am. Our latest information indicates that uh, Palama Settlement might reopen our campus by the first week of July or thereabouts, which means that we might be able to gather in larger groups uh, by then. But we will still have to respect social distancing protocols when we get together. So I think about what it will take to do a hug. As a microbiologist, maybe you can help me with this question. Where can we get hazmat suits? I'm Jonathan, and I just wanted to ask, why is it that it seems like God challenges you with more and more hardships the deeper you go into faith? Well, thanks, Jonathan. That's a heck of a question, and uh, I'm challenged to know how to answer it well and succinctly. Uh, we know that God doesn't design life to be easy. The point of life is to grow in trusting God. And the more mature we are in trust, well, the more often we can be challenged or provoked into situations that require a great deal of trust. It's like working a muscle. If you want it to continue to grow, you need to lift heavier and heavier weight. You need to stick with it. And often I think that God shepherds our life in that way. He continues to give us challenges because he continues uh, to, to want us uh, to, to grow. Um, but I think the more practical question is, how can we keep going or how can we keep growing in uh, our life of trust unto the overcoming of challenges? And uh, I know there's a lot of wisdom a person might share in, in that regards. Um, here's, here's something that I think about often. Faith leads to overcoming challenges, but faith doesn't lie in the overcoming. Faith lies in the trying. And one thing that really helps me to handle continuing challenges is having a tribe of try around me. People who understand that the faith is in the trying. People who know how to nourish triers and not just overcomers. And if you can get yourself in a community of people who understand that your endurance will grow exponentially, plus you'll probably be a blessing to them. Thanks for keeping on. Good morning, Blue Water Ohana. Happy Father's Day. Welcome. We love that you're here. Some announcements and updates. First, no news yet from our landlords on when we'll be able to gather in the gym. So we'll continue meeting right here on Sundays until we get that green light. The latest intelligence says that we'll possibly gather physically the first half of July. We'll see. Next, uh, this coming June 26th and 27th, Veronica Lamb, our Justice Ministry leader, will be a keynote speaker for the Alec and Bell Waterhouse Lecture Series 2020 Anti-Human Trafficking Conference. This conference will be free of charge and available for in-person and online attendance. Check out the website shown on the screen to sign up for that. All right, let's continue our worship with our offering. You can give in two ways, online at our website or via post. Just send your checks to our office. If you're new or visiting, please feel no obligation to give. Uh, but if you haven't signed up for our weekly newsletter, please do that. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Uh, you can sign up for that online at our website. And for this week's newsletter, Jordan has written a short reflection about the racial crisis. 
It will help unpack the current situation, and we want to speak the clear hope of the gospel. So be sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter. All right, before we pray for the kids, another shout out to our fathers on Father's Day. Thank you, dads. May the spirit of fathers flow throughout our community. May there be no one who feels orphaned, but swept up in the father's adoption. Thank you, dads, for your presence in our community. All right, kids, stand up. Oh, Father, we thank you for our children. We thank you uh, that they can come to you freely. Uh, we thank you uh, that there are fathers amongst our midst uh, that, like you, uh, guide us uh, and show your love to us. Bless their time with your love, your word, and your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most everybody has an idea about what you are. What you are. God knows who you are. And he calls us to learn his ways. When I graduated from college, I moved into the most violent neighborhood in America, East Palo Alto, California. It was largely black, had some pockets of Latinos. I moved in there with a couple roommates. Uh, who graduated with me, and we did whatever we could to pursue uh, justice in that community. We rented this big old house for cheap. We built a shower in our backyard. We built bunks in the garage. We had people living with us in our spare bedrooms, and, and we just went for it. We tried to be a positive and godly presence in what was a very, very troubled neighborhood. And one night uh, early in our uh, time in East Palo Alto, uh, we got word through uh, this neighborhood kid that the cops had surrounded Christine's house. Uh, Christine was a friend of ours uh, that we had made uh, in the neighborhood. She was an interesting character, uh, Christine, this young lady who was just wide open friendly. She was often lewd and inappropriate. Uh, and as near as we could tell, uh, she had been sexually abused by every single male member of her family. So it was deeply uh, troubled. And we got word that the cops were surrounding her house and that there had been some shooting there and there was big trouble. So uh, I and one of my roommates, we hopped in a car. Uh, we went over to Christine's house. Um, and uh, the word was she had opened fire at, I believe it was her cousin, her male cousin inside the house. Everybody was now out of the house except Christine and she was barricaded inside with a gun. Uh, so I walked up to the house, me and my roommate, and there were uh, two patrol cars there when we arrived, uh, two cops there. And I walked onto the lawn next to the, uh, the cop in charge and he looked at me and without waiting for me to say a word, he said, you guys with the church? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And then he said, okay, you guys got it. And then he went like this to his partner and they got in their patrol cops and they left. They left the entire situation to me and my roommate. I guess the alternative was for him to call in the SWAT team, right? These guys with shields and armor and to storm the house and to storm Christine, uh, which happened all the time in East Palo Alto, California. There was gunfire every single night in, in my neighborhood, but the cops just want to know part of that uh, on this occasion. They left it to the church guys. Uh, and so everybody was looking at us. Uh, and so uh, I, I shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, I guess I'm going in. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I walked into the house, uh, evidently, because that's what the church guys do, take care of the situation. And I remember having a, a kind of this uh, this thought in my head, you know how old Western sheriffs would, would say, yeah, I'm the law and he and these here parts and then do something like heroic. Uh, and I had the line in my head, well, I'm the church in these here parts. And I guess this is what the church did. Uh, they walked through uh, doors uh, against uh, barricaded uh, shooters. The act was not so crazy as you might think it was because I actually knew Christine, right? And Christine knew me. And so I never actually felt unsafe. 
uh, walking in uh, to the house, I just had to make sure that she identified me, you know, before like pulling the trigger or something. So I walked through the front door yelling, hey, Christine, it's Jordan. Hey, it's Jordan, I'm here, I'm here, I'm coming in. And uh, she said, oh, Jordan, yeah, come on. She was in one of the back bedrooms. Uh, she had had the door shut. She had blown away a portion of the door with her gun. But, you know, she set this gun down and I sat down on the bed with her and we had a nice friendly chat. And to make a long story short, it worked out. And later on, uh, I, of course, reflected on the whole thing. You know, she did a bad thing. She did a very violent thing. Thank God nobody got killed. She was locked into a violent moment in a situation that could have gotten way more violent, depending on what the police did in that moment. But anyone who knew Christine and knew her life could understand how she got there and why she got there. Um, and I think about those two cops during these troubled times in our country and the current situation of, let's just call it racial unrest. Um, those cops saw a couple Christians show up and then they decided to just leave it to the Christians and they just took off. And they surely could have been fired for doing that. Oh, yeah, we don't want to face down an armed shooter, so we're going to let the Christians do it, and we're going to leave town, which is literally what they did, uh, because East Palo Alto did not have its own uh, uh, patrols uh, all the time. So they, they totally violated protocol, but I love that they did it. I love that they let that situation get personal um, and and peacekeeping instead of letting it be about protocol and enforcement. To this day, one of the best examples of policing I ever saw, and I've seen a lot of them in troubling situations. I don't know what the moral to this story is exactly, except that there's a difference between knowing what someone is and knowing who someone is. And some goodness erupted in that situation um, because we knew who Christine was. The world often sees what a, a, a person is. And the world does this for some bad reasons. The world loves to categorize. But the world also does it for reasons that many people think are, are good. Uh, there is a, a, uh, a tidal wave of categorization and typing uh, right now uh, in our country. And some of it, I think, is, is well-intentioned. But God has a way of seeing past what people are and seeing who people are. And that changes everything. And the more desperate the situation is, I think the more important God's ways are. After uh, that night, uh, Christine would often drop by our house. And I remember she would often say, when I hang out with you guys, I feel like I don't want to kill myself for a while. That was one of her, her phrases, uh, which was a great compliment from a woman who was at least half crazy. Um, God love her. We would make a lot of chili together and we would sit down and eat and just have it out. I have a warm up question uh, for you uh, this morning. Here's the question. Uh, it's a simple and direct one. Have you ever had God lead you to do something that you didn't want to do? And how did you handle it? Consider. It's always going to be inconvenient. It's always going to be risky. There's always that, that thing that makes you not want to do it. He tells me something and I, yeah, I don't really like the answer. Then I'll do the, are you sure? Okay. Like, give me a sign that, that, you know, that's really what you want me to do. I'm like, the kind of person who likes to be certain and know that this is for sure what I'm supposed to do. Okay, give me another sign because I'm still not sure. God uh, kind of meets me halfway or sometimes more than halfway in doing things that I don't want to do. Like I feel like, oh, I might have to commit all this time or resources, but uh, God provides. My usual reaction um, is stubbornness and I don't really want to do it but I know I have to do it force yourself to blurt the words out and then you're like okay well said it can't can't unsay it so I've learned that if I ignore it I'm uh, robbing someone of a chance to be blessed 
So here's a story about the Apostle Peter doing something that he didn't want to do. And it's a story from Acts 10. We're going to try and read the whole chapter, which is a lot, but it's one story, uh, so maybe it will be okay. This is a story about when Peter took the gospel to a Roman military officer named Cornelius. Now, a little background here, if you don't know it, Peter was a Jew, Cornelius was a Roman military officer. Uh, and this is just a very potent situation, particularly uh, for us right now uh, during this season, an important situation to consider. The situation between Jews and Romans was an awful situation because the Romans had invaded uh, Palestine, invaded uh, uh, the Jewish nation, and they had taken over, and they were an oppressive, exploitive people by design. The Romans had an empire. They were taking over the entire Mediterranean at this point. They were a police state, unapologetically so. At this time in the Roman Empire, uh, some historians estimate that there were about 2 million slaves that the Romans put at work to build their roads and stuff like that. Uh, and in Jerusalem, which is where the church was headquartered, uh, very regularly the Romans would execute Jewish rabble-rousers publicly on a hill called Golgotha. They would stick them on the cross and literally torture them to death publicly. This is a very, very nasty situation of injustice and complete oppression. All right, that's the background. And this is the story. At Caesarea, they're named a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. The Romans were pantheistic uh, in their approach, but every so often uh, a Roman occupier would get to know uh, the local uh, deity and uh, the local deity of, of the Jews was, of course, Yahweh, uh, the one true God. And Cornelius had become familiar with him and had become a devout, a God-loving person. One day at about three in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send some men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter was up on, went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Peter had an interesting prayer life. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. So this is like a big movie screen in front of Peter. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. A little pause here. Uh, the Jews had a very restrictive diet. Uh, they, kept, they kept kosher. There were certain animals that they were not allowed to eat, certain ways in which they had to eat. And Peter, being a, an observant Jew, had maintained his restrictive and ritualistic diet his whole life. And God is saying, we'll eat unclean animals now. Do things in an unclean way. And Peter's objecting. That can't be right. That can't be right, Lord. Surely not. Uh, uh, you're not meaning what I think you're meaning. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God gets to call the shots. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. 
While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests, which in and of itself would have defied uh, Jewish tradition. Uh, but Peter is going for it. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa, Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. Literally, that word means his neighbors, his local neighbors. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, paying great respect. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. That's not how we do this, he's saying. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people already. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. I am breaking our own law here, he says. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's not my place to judge. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter is still trying to figure out what's going on. Like, well, talk to me. Like, what, what should we do here? Cornelius answered, well, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. And it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Whatever that is, it's still a great unknown. Then Peter began to speak. Mm, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Literally, he does not show partiality. He does not take a part. He does not take sides is what it means. He does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. And that word nation is ethnos. It means ethnicity. God accepts from every ethnicity, every people group, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news and peace through Jesus Christ. I think it's great that Peter emphasizes that the message of Jesus was a message of peace and peacemaking. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews. I like it that he slips that phrase in there. This is the country of the Jews, Roman dude. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, Peter said, which strikes me as a very kind way to say it. He could have said, you Romans killed him, but instead they killed him, which is lovely. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There's a lot of eating and drinking in this story. Keep track. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, not just Cornelius, not just his family, but any neighbor who happened to be there. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. 
for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Uh, the Gentiles had not even had a chance to repent yet, to believe, to formally accept Jesus, anything, and the Holy Spirit is already filling them and giving them supernatural gifts. And God uh, just got excited and couldn't wait for Peter to finish his sermon. Then Peter said, well, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days to be part of the Ohana. So like I said, the situation between Jews and Romans was absolutely terrible. But somehow the gospel finds a way among them here in this story. Uh, the group identities were very plain in this story, right? You had Romans on one side. You had very observant Jews on the other. And they're both trying to figure out how to follow God, uh, really. Peter thought that, that his group identity, that his traditions were literally sacred. He thought that violating his traditions was a violation of God. That was his perspective. Uh, but the Lord speaks to them, speaks to him. The Lord has to change Peter's thinking about that before he can use Peter in Peter's calling. And that's so often true, isn't it? God has to change our thinking before he can make us an agent of change. And you see it here right at the inception of the kingdom of God on earth, the church on the earth. Uh, Peter knew what Cornelius was. That was really obvious to everyone. What was Cornelius? Well, Cornelius was, yeah, I mean, he was an agent of the regime. He wasn't just a Roman citizen. He was a Roman military officer. And he wasn't just a Roman military officer. He was, you know, he was an occupying Roman military officer. This was a man with a much oppressive authority. God knew who Cornelius was. God knew that somehow in the midst of all of that, Cornelius was actually a decent man who was trying to do some good things, who'd been generous to the poor, um, who had tried to be respectful toward the Jews. And that motivates God uh, to do something more for Cornelius. So he deputized Peter uh, to be the peace bringer in this situation, uh, to be the one who brought the truth of Jesus and also carried in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit ends up being a big star uh, in this story. Uh, it's interesting to me when I reflect on the story that a big part of it is God separating Cornelius out from his group identity. I don't think God was a fan of the way that the Romans were oppressing and literally murdering Jews during this period. Uh, but, but Cornelius, he did honor. Sort of picked the individual uh, out, of, out of the group, separated him out. And that's something to, to think about. But what really strikes me is in the moment uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius to bless him as an individual person, God very generously shared that blessing with all of Cornelius's family, the entire crowd that gathered. So God had honored an individual, but the way he, he goes about doing it is by sharing that individual's blessing with his entire people as much as he can. You know, God blesses groups of people, but he always does it through an individual. That seems to be a hallmark of his ways on earth. The way God blesses groups is by finding godly individuals to host the kingdom in their midst. It has ever been thus in the world. Well, Peter and his guys are blown away by what they see. They see the Holy Spirit jump on them. And Peter's like, man, I didn't even do the altar call yet. I guess God might really be into this. And Peter and the guys might have been a little bit scandalized because they did not see this coming. Whatever Peter was thinking was going to happen, when the Romans get the Holy Spirit, he's freaked out. It's like, well, I guess now we have to baptize them. You know, I thought maybe I was just supposed to lecture them on how they were supposed to be respectful toward the Jews and the God of the Jews. But evidently, 
No, they're fully in. Like they are our brothers and sisters. Uh, so a little bit blown away by that. Might have been a bit scandalized. And, and it doesn't say this, but I imagine also that Peter and the guys with him might have felt just a little bit traitorous. You know, they have defiled themselves by walking into a Gentile house and they are sharing with the Gentiles the very best of what they have in Jesus. And maybe they're thinking, how are we gonna tell the others about this? You know, this is an awkward situation, but Peter's like, yeah, well, we gotta baptize him. You know, uh, far be it from us to hold back because God is not holding back anything for these unrighteous people, you know? Um, there they go. Perhaps you know uh, the rest of the history. Rome, the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, would become an incredible vessel uh, for spreading the kingdom of God on earth. The powers of Rome would often try to eradicate Christianity. Uh, a great oppression against Christians broke out uh, soon after this. Uh, more than one Roman emperor tried to snuff out all Christians everywhere. But in general, you know, uh, Rome became uh, a way forward uh, for the church uh, around the world, usually by persons in the midst of all of the chaos and hardly ever by traditions and, and institutions. Uh, brave Christians carrying things forward in the midst of all manner of unrest and persecution. I think maybe verses 34 and 35 are the hub of this passage. That's when Peter begins to speak and says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, every ethnos, the one who fears him and does what is right. Ultimately, the message of the church is fear God and do what is right. And that message is spoken to groups, but it's also called out of individuals. Don't do what is justifiable in your mind. Do what is right in God's mind. That's the basic directive. And sometimes fearing God means doing what he leads you to do, even though it seems objectionable to you as it certainly did to Peter in this story. And ultimately what we preach as, Christian, as Christians is God's way of doing things. Not our way, but God's way of doing things. And our job is to represent God before we represent anything or anyone else. That would have been a lesson that Peter carried away uh, from this wild week in his life. And now we have to get to some application points of this story. And it's hard for me to think about application points without thinking about this season that we're in of great racial unrest and a manifest injustice and dialogue about justice, the history of justice, the future of justice. And I, for one, I have meditated a great deal on what it means to respect God's ways uh, in the midst of all of this chaos. And there's been quite a bit of chaos. Uh, what should we do when we want to see God's gospel make a penetrating and transformative difference in a situation of manifest injustice? Which was certainly the case in the days of Peter and Cornelius. A situation of manifest injustice that Peter very much would have wanted God to address in a big way. Uh, but his job was to carry the gospel message into it and then let, to let the Holy Spirit work like that. What can we do? What should we think about? What are our guiding principles going forward? And I'd just like to suggest a few things that probably should not in any way be surprising to anyone because they are very straightforward Jesus teachings. And these Jesus teachings apply in any time and place, even in contentious ones. So uh, uh, they apply to us now. Uh, number one, in times of great contention and upset, do not judge. Don't judge anyone. 
There is no more basic Jesus teaching than this. Judge not, lest ye be judged. I think we can judge behaviors, but we are not allowed to judge people. I think we can judge, you know, maybe facts and statements, but we are not allowed to judge people. That is not our place. Who people are, how they are measured, that's up to God. You know, he gets to decide clean and unclean. Not me, not you, not anyone else. So basic, straightforward Jesus. Don't judge. Don't judge. Be very careful about that. Um, right now, uh, part of the popular dialogue has to do with what they're calling outrage culture or cancel culture. Um, uh, not sure exactly how to define that, but there's an awful lot of outrage and judgmentalism uh, going on. It's not godly. It's simply not godly. Uh, so please mind your social media and treat everyone with respect always, period. That's just how Christians should behave. Uh, number two, forgive. Straightforward Jesus teaching. Hard to find a more fundamental Jesus teaching than that. It's right in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. If you're not a forgiving person, then you're at risk of unforgiveness yourself. Forgiveness is what makes the wheels turn uh, in the kingdom of God. Forgive. This is the way of God. It always has been. Uh, be careful then with calling out sin. Be careful with how you do it. I would agree that sometimes, you know, it's okay to say, well, yeah, that's harmful. You know, that's sinful. But please be very careful about how you're doing it because you never ever want to strike a tone of unforgiveness. You never want to strike a tone that is anything less than merciful and gracious, particularly when you're talking about sins, transgressions, offenses, anything like that. I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. And the way the church unfolds throughout history is indicative of it as well. Be careful with calling out sin. I don't care what side of the argument you're on. I don't care what point you're trying to defend. I don't care what group you're advocating for. Just be careful about how you talk about it and try to champion the cause of forgiveness, which is the cause for which Christ died. Very important. Uh, number three, and not surprisingly, if you're uh, a Blue Water regular, pursue justice. Pursue justice. You know, true religion means to try to free the yoke of oppression on those who are oppressed. And in this world, there's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of injustice, present, historical, future. Jesus says the poor will always be with you. And we are always to prioritize people who are disadvantaged in some fashion. When you pursue justice, though, pursue it accordingly. Pursue it according to the Jesus teachings, which means pursue it in accordance with, well, non-judgmentalism and forgiveness. Let that be part of your pursuit of justice. Certainly do whatever you can to loose the yoke of the oppressed, as the prophet Isaiah puts it. Uh, you'll need godly wisdom for this. You'll need godly creativity for this because oppression comes from the outside as well as the inside. I've been reflecting a lot on the story of how God released uh, the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. Getting them out of Egypt was actually the easy part. And then for many decades after, he had to get Egypt out of them. He had to figure out how to turn a freed people into a very free people. And this applies to anyone who wants to walk on a spiritual journey. You know, it's, it's easy for us to kind of get out of a situation. It's hard for us to get the situation out of us. It's hard for anyone to walk as a free and mature person. That's where the wisdom is needed, you know? And that's why anyone who pursues justice has to be a builder, not just an advocate, not just an explainer or a judger, 
but a builder of communities. So much more complicated. So much more adventurous. So much more powerful. And I think we each have a call in this capacity. And that's a sermon in and of itself. And if you've hung around Blue Water, you've heard me preach that sermon uh, probably more times uh, than you care to recall. Um, but pursue justice accordingly. And I don't care what side of what argument you're on. I don't care what point you're trying to defend. I don't care what group you're advocating for. Uh, pursue justice with creativity, with non-judgmentalism and forgiveness and a tone of grace. Otherwise, no matter what you accomplished in the realm of justice, it won't lead people to Christ. And then you end up with the worst injustice of all. Everything we do must have the hallmark of grace and non-judgmentalism and forgiveness. Otherwise, no matter what we accomplish, people have not seen Jesus. Uh, and, then, and then finally, I don't know if this is an application point. I don't know if it's maybe just a point on which to reflect and meditate. Um, but, but as for me, I kind of feel like in these troubled times, what I want to preach, the word I want to preach is generosity. Justice without judgment and accusation is simply generosity. It happens when people move in a spirit of generosity. That is the spirit that brings justice right then and there. That's it. That's what does it. Uh, and so I want, I want to call everyone just to be incredibly generous in any way that they can. It's a simple word, but I think it's a powerful and healing word. If there's a picture of generosity that haunts me, that leaps from the pages of the story we've shared today, uh, I think it's a picture of people sharing a table. When, when God wants to coach Peter to cross racial divides and to bring the gospel to someone who, who needs it, the way he encourages them to do it is, is basically he says, share this guy's table, eat what he eats. You know, he shows him a vision of all of these unclean foods and says, Hey, eat these things. And it only makes sense to Peter when he walks into the Gentile house. He stayed with them a few days. He had to eat Gentile foods. He had to eat unclean foods in all probability. It's hard to sit at a literal table and share a literal meal with someone and not experience at least a hint of fellowship, a hint of ohana, a hint of unity. It's hard to literally sit at table with someone and not to at least see how generosity might go forward, might help, you know? Um, and I think that's why so much of the gospel uh, story takes place around meals, you know, from the wedding at Cana to meal at Mary and Martha's to the meal at Simon the Leper's house to the Last Supper to the wedding feasts of the Lamb. You know, this idea of sitting and just eating with people, incredibly powerful. What I used to do with Christine in East Palo Alto, she'd come over so she didn't have to feel like killing herself. We'd make chili. We'd sit down and spend hours and hours at the kitchen table, just, just sharing the table. Um, <clears throat> That's not a prescription for all things, but I think it's a powerful picture for how we want things to be. Peter would struggle with this going forward. Quite famously, he had a big falling out with the Apostle Paul later on in church history because Peter, he fell back. There was a time, even after this story, where Peter refused to eat with Gentiles. And Paul corrected him publicly and said, do not ever do that. Do not ever do that. Um, so it would, it would be a battle in the church going forward. Who are you sitting at table with? And how can you sit at table with others uh, in the future? Meditate on it. Think of it. One of my favorite Martin Luther King quotes comes from his I have a dream speech. In which he said, you know, I have a dream. Uh, that someday on the Red Hills in Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would 
be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. That was his image. And I have a fancy that Dr. King chose that image because he was a student of scripture, uh, because he knew the gospel stories and he knew what it meant to sit together at table with someone and just experienced who they were uh, instead of what they were. Let's pray. Father God, it is written, you have prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies, a place where it's possible to sit and to invite, to feel safe and secure, and to testify to the provision of God. Uh, we pray, Lord, that at our table at Blue Water Mission, there would be space for everyone and that you would make us the proper sort of hosts. That we would uh, go out to the highways and byways, the high places and the low places, uh, and that we would find any and all willing to come to the Feast of the Lamb. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to move in a transformative and penetrating spirit of justice, that we would do so in a way that showcases, that champions the spirit of uh, acceptance and not, not judgment, the spirit of forgiveness and not measurement. I pray, Lord, that you would empower your people with the spirit of generosity that healed divides through the ages. We really need your help, uh, Lord. Um, our nation and our respective nations need your help. Be glorified, Lord, and ultimately we pray that anything that we accomplish would call attention to the character of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, friends. Wow, I was so struck by Jordan's message today. What steps would you and I need to take this week to follow God's way of forgiving, of not judging, but of building? May we each live generously this week, and in everything we say and do, make sure we're drawing folks to the spirit of Jesus and not to the spirit of the world, which cannot save. If you would like someone to pray with you for help to do just that, or maybe, maybe you have another need for healing or heartache, you can let our prayer team come alongside you. Email julie at bluewatermission.org with your name and your phone number, and someone will contact you between 10.30 and 11 today and pray with you. And today is Father's Day, and we're especially cheering you dads on. Yay, guys, go! There is an incredibly fierce battle against dads in our world because so much health and blessing flows from fatherhood. Just look at the story of Cornelius. And conversely, wherever the enemy knocks dads out, he decimates households, neighborhoods, and entire generations. So fathers, we honor you. The enemy wants to get you down about the humble, small kind, you know, everyday unappreciated work and to criticize your human limitations, but we wanna recognize you as heroes. Don't give up. Be encouraged by the example of guys like Cornelius. By his regular prayers and kindness to the poor, this faith outsider attracted the Holy Spirit himself to his family, to his entire household, and he released a historic waterfall of blessing. You can do the same. And no matter the brokenness each of us has experienced because human sin is universal, know today that you and I have a perfect heavenly dad. He sees who we each are and he's eager to help. Okay, friends, thank you again for joining us. God bless you and we'll see you very soon.